which should cover everybody. Uh, you know the, the threatening phrase, don't make me come in there. Right? Whether this, whether there's disruption in the kid's room, whether you're the kid or have the kid, uh, or the back seat of the car, the warning of, of the parent's personal presence has a way of drawing kids back into line. And even though the rules and the expectations are almost always clear anyway, the prospect of the enforcer's personal bodily presence brings a sense of renewed concern for right practice and, and awareness of the consequences for being out of line. There's a particular shame in being confronted with the person to whom we are accountable that makes us dread that encounter. And Paul essentially threw this warning at the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 14 to 21. This passage brings together the themes from the whole of chapters 1 to 4. This is the culmination of, of one section of this letter in a pointed inju- injunction against their behavior. There, there were divisions, as you'll remember if you've been with us through these studies, divisions in the congregation regarding who the most prestigious teacher was, Apollos, Peter, or Paul. And some linked themselves to particular leaders to boost their own status within the church community. And we see here, as verses 6 to 13 made obvious, that some grew arrogant within this church. It was clear that some of them thought less of Paul because he proclaimed a a forthright gospel without using the demanded rhetorical tricks of Greek philosophy. We see that those same issues come to a head in verses 14 to 21. They had become arrogant as stated outright in verse 18. They had talked a big talk about what ministry should look like. But Paul is more interested in how effective that big talk has been in furthering the gospel. Paul was their spiritual father, and yet these children seemed more interested in following the world than looking to the examples of faith God had given them already. The Corinthians misplaced priorities needed to be rewired and Paul addressed them head on here with the warning that he intended to come and sort them out in person as well. So the main point is that we need to learn to use the God-appointed helps in our life rather than pursuing innovative Christianity. Use the helps God has given us rather than innovating our religion. We're going to think about this in three points. Fatherly care, further coaching, and foundational concerns. So, fatherly care. So this text shows Paul's fatherly concern for the Corinthian believers. So here's the thing. I think really often people outside and maybe inside the church perceive a concern with holiness as being overbearing, picky, and, and mean, 
right? People see exhortations to pursue godliness as trying to force our own views on others. We just want to be right. But Paul was explicit about the fact that his intentions were very much the opposite. And he wanted to speak pointedly to them as his beloved children. So verses 14 to 16, let's read them together. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For that you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Now, if you were paying attention as we did the reading, right? So in verses 6 to 13, Paul's powerful push against growing arrogance among the congregation pretty devastatingly crushed the Corinthians' reasons to be proud of themselves, to think of themselves as particularly special. It'd be easy to think that if the Corinthians were not shamed about the way they had thought and behaved at the end of that section, they're in fact beyond shame. Paul explained in verse 14 that his purpose in writing those things was not to shame them, even if the result of what he said should be from another perspective, besides Paul's goal, their shame. So his goal was to admonish them away from arrogance as a father would exhort his children. The fatherly metaphor is important because good fathers who know and want what is good for their children so that they become God-fearing people and worthwhile members of society don't castigate their children just to make them feel bad, just to make them feel bad, as if feeling bad in itself accomplishes something. His purpose instead was to show them how foolish and undesirable their behavior was. And they should be able to recognize that as they read about the implications of how they had been treating Paul. He wanted them to see this because he longed for them to be better, for them to grow in holiness concerning how they thought about the world and about their leaders. So we should see then Paul's fatherly motives take the forefront, which contrasts with the view that Paul was arguing against them just because they had criticized him. We can see here that he was not as concerned with how he had been criticized than with how they had fixated on worldly categories of prestige. They had sought to attain glory, if even just in their own minds, rather than being satisfied with the gospel. As we considered last week, they lived a theology of glory, namely earthly glory, rather than a theology of the cross. And the reason Paul marshaled his case as a father was because in the human realm, fatherhood entails responsibility for and a certain authority over 
children. In verse 15, Paul showed them that even though they have become enamored with other ways of doing things, they should remember who he is to them. Before he came, they were lost. But he became their father in the gospel by being the one who led them to Christ and took foremost responsibility for them in their spiritual growth. There were others who had invested in them as their teachers, but they were not their spiritual fathers. So practically, what does this show for us? I mean, this tells us about the relevance of having fathers and mothers in the faith. We should long, we we really should want people who have taken responsibility primarily in a very pointed way to help us grow in our walk with Christ. Don't think, and this is really important, don't think that we begin or that we grow beyond the need for people wiser in the faith helping us through Christian life. We need people in our lives committed to our spiritual care. So if that, and particularly for our younger members here, but not exclusively, if that is your actual father or mother, then you are tremendously blessed. But many of us today need to look outside our biological families, within our spiritual family, to find this guidance. Like the Corinthians had to do, if that's not obvious. We will have to look for people to become our parents in Christ Jesus through the gospel, as Paul described in verse 15. The gospel makes us God's children, which brings us into a new family. And in this family called the church, we find those who have to be our brothers and sisters for our good. But also we find those who can become our father or mother in the faith. And we do see what this entails in verse 16. These are people worth imitating as they imitate Christ, as Paul will specify in chapter 11, verse 1. So Paul's fatherly care was his work to provide a fundamental model of pursuing Christ for others to copy. That brings us to our second point, further coaching. Okay, so where are we? Let me repeat the the main point for, for you, that we need to learn to use God's appointed helps in our life rather than pursuing innovative Christianity. We don't make up our faith, but we use God's given helps to pursue him. So the first point flagged the issues involved in um, by, by showing how we deviate from what we should be like as Christians when we don't use those helps. And it noted our first help, spiritual parents. So Paul called the Corinthians to imitate him as their spiritual fathers. So we see that spiritual parents are God's help to us in providing examples to follow in how we live for Christ. Verse 17 shows the next help 
that God provides. Teachers, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So, this verse, obviously, follows verse 16, which is Paul's call to imitate him. And now he said that he sent Timothy, who was his beloved and faithful child. Notice that little extra there for them who are his faith or his children in the faith, his beloved children, but maybe not his faithful children. Timothy is his beloved and faithful child in the faith because he, he and Paul had sent them because he wanted his other children to follow the pattern of his life as well. So Timothy's job was to remind them of Paul's ways in Christ, his principled habits of the Christian life. And so we need to note the phrase here, as I teach them everywhere in every church. We could render that really woodenly, just overly woodenly, really. So I'm not criticized, just just as I taught in every church of everywhere. Like he's making a point. This is stuff every church has to understand. And the point is, my point that I want to make at least, is that although some things are culturally conditioned, we have to take account of that, some things in the Christian faith are universal. Full stop. There is a reason that we speak of certain things like our ecumenical creeds as things that every Christian in every place of all times believe because they are basic Christian tenets and you cannot deny them and still be a real member of a true church. But there are not only things that Christians must believe, but also things that Christians must do no matter where and when they live. There are universals of Christian faith and practice. More than that, we see from this verse that we need others to teach us those things. That's the particular help. Paul knew that the Christians could, the Corinthians, Paul knew the Corinthians could not feel their way to proper belief and action, nor could they use raw human reason as Paul had outlined in chapter 2, to arrive at what they need to believe and do. They had to be taught. And had to be reminded of what they had been taught. What God had revealed about faith and practice. The problem, and here's the thing, the problem is that we so often forget our need for this help. We look at the Corinthians and say, why won't they just listen? Can't they just get it? Like, how many times have they been told this? But I mean, we, don't we, in ways like the Corinthians, start to think that we, I, have it all figured out? don't need help anymore? We think our, our teachers who explain to us what all Christians believe and things that all Christians do are authoritarian and domineering. And some, some of them may be. And we have to measure everything that we're taught against the Scripture as we confess it in the church. 
But this passage shows us that we do need teachers to explain what it means to be a Christian. And we need guides and leaders who help us be accountable to that. So what's your response to hard teaching from your leaders? Do you thoroughly consider it, consider it measured against God's word? Or do you dismiss it outright as if it's not what you prefer or worse, not what you feel that Christianity is, so it doesn't matter? And that confronts that innovative tendency that even Christians can develop, but we should not desire innovative religion. We need and need to admit that we need further coaching, teachers' real instruction and guidance in being a Christian at the ordinary level, and that's another help that God has given us. And it brings us to our third point, foundational concerns. So, all right, we saw Paul emphasize his fatherly concern, his fatherly care, and we saw the need for teachers to continue to remind us of the truth of faith and practice. God has given us these helps to guide us in how we ought to think and live as Christians so that we don't invent creative versions of religion within our own underlying deceitful hearts. The remaining verses of this passage show that Paul would come to the Corinthians to assess the most fundamental issues with those who were speaking against him. Namely, namely, if they were just speaking or if God was using them to bring the gospel to others. So let's read verses 18 to 21. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will not find out the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? So, so the parental warning here shines, doesn't it? As Paul said, that they've acted like he won't be coming, but he planned to visit them. Verse 21 says their response to this letter determines what kind of visit that would be, whether encouraging fellowship or disciplining misbehaving children. Verses 19 and 20, however, clarify Paul's real issue with those who were arrogant. They talked big talk about what ministers should do and how the church should look. They spoke as if they knew everything about ministry and the Christian life divided some Corinthians against Paul, their spiritual father. Paul responded to these arrogant folks that they may talk a big talk that sounds great, but how powerful was it? The gospel, as Paul preached it in simplicity, had brought salvation to these people. So what has whatever these proud folks offer actually accomplished? What Paul offered 
had accomplished salvation among them, what was this big talk doing? Sorry, that prompts us to consider what's actually our main help, doesn't it? The gospel itself. The gospel's not flashy, but it accomplishes a lot. The gospel is not innovative as actually we must receive it from outside. I mean, this is really important. This is crucial. The gospel isn't innovative because we have to receive it from outside us. The gospel doesn't rise up within us from our feelings, but is delivered to us from another source. It comes from outside through preachers, but even more, it comes from outside us from God, its author who speaks through the gospel as it's proclaimed, as we explain it to others, to affect faith within us and pronounce the saving declaration upon us as we are forgiven and accepted as righteous in His sight because of the crucified and risen Christ. Now, if no one ever told and taught us the things we believe... I mean, whatever it is you've got on your list that you believe right now, if no one ever told you that or taught you that, then we should be really hesitant about it. Because God designed Christianity to, to be taught and taught, uh, told and taught, rather than invented in our hearts. We can't think about it like this, right? The Father sent His Son as prophet, Right? Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, and sent his son as prophet into creation. And as prophet, Christ reveals to us God's will by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. As he taught us the gospel, we had to have someone tell it to us. Namely, someone from heaven. And so, where do we stand? in relation to these foundational concerns about whether we try to relate to God by our own big talk or the gospel's power. Do you think you're all right with God because you do your best to be good and feel and that you feel fine in relation to God? I mean, do you see here, this is so important, right from this text, that Paul rebuked the Corinthians for thinking that this was all about rhetoric, that this was all about what they preferred, that this was all about understanding flashy ideas. It's not about that. It's not about them showing up in church. It's not about them being there all the time. It's not about them discussing big things. It's not about them discussing things at all. Because they had lost sight of what saved them. Do you know what salvation is? Do you know where it comes from? Because if your approach is to say, I do my best. I can talk a big talk. I can do the Christianese lingo. If that's your approach, repent. And flee to Christ. Because He has done all things to make you God's child. If we try to come to God apart from Christ, we're doomed. There is no good ending to that story. It does not matter 
how much of an image we put forth. It does not matter how much talk we talk. The gospel is the key in all of this. If, on the other hand, you know your need for God to tell you the good news about what he has done in Jesus Christ, and you have trusted in Christ to rescue you from hell, then actually we can rejoice to remember that this is a fundamental help of the gospel. We lean hard, right? We don't, we don't put the gospel over here. Okay, I, I've checked the believe in the gospel box. We lean hard on the gospel, fall forward in faith as our sure source of being right with God. And the grounds, the only grounds of our confidence that God will do good to us. And he will. We know that God will bring to completion the good work he began in us. He will never forsake nor abandon us. Is that not a beautiful promise for Christians? And we see that in the gospel's power to erase our sins before God. And fill us with gratitude to live for him in this world. But that power is found only when we do the simple act of looking to Jesus in faith. As the sole source of our salvation and the director of our lives. So let's run to him now and let's pray. Father God, we do dread, we tremble in some ways about the fact that we see how this church that the Apostle Paul himself founded had lost sight of the gospel in its purity. We see that they had added things to it, that they had been distracted even within the life of church, and that they had forgotten the simple premises of the gospel. We pray that we would keep Jesus Christ the center of our lives, that we would never deviate from gazing at our Savior, that we would be enamored with him, that all of the rhetoric that might come in proclaiming him would would disappear as we long to know Christ clearly. Whatever it is that comes from this pulpit, from now until the time that Christ returns, we pray that it would be clear about the gospel. And we pray that you would use that gospel to change us, that you would make Christians, and that you would plant Christians more deeply in our Savior, that we would grow in our union with Him. We pray that we would cherish our Savior as the one who has rescued us from all things that might condemn us. And He has given us His Spirit to equip us to live in this world. We do pray these things in His name, for His sake. Amen.